We've been praying and hoping to change the culture of our church in a sense, not change it, um, maybe redirect it and be a better way of saying it, toward more of an outward vision, more looking out, and especially in regards to seeing, seeing the lost and realizing the need and the calling and the privilege and the responsibility that we have as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ living in the 21st century in this amazing nation that we live in to testify and witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And really, as I've said before, and it, it is not overstating it, that's why you're here. That's why you live. You're living to witness to Christ, to Jesus. You're not living for you to have a great life and be successful and make tons of money and do all the fun things that we so enjoy and we so appreciate. You're living to testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. And so if we can align our lives with that increasingly, we will be well-pleasing to the Father, I know. I've been really encouraged, and we as a church have been encouraged the last two weeks because two really, I believe, important truths have been deposited into our hearts regarding this gospel culture of going and of speaking. And the first was what Alan Frau brought to us a couple of weeks ago and encouraged us with, and that was that we must live interruptible lives. We must live interruptible lives. And all of that means being willing to be inconvenienced, being prayerfully uh, open to and, pers- and, 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 and being anticipating divine appointments that God would lead us into with people, and always being willing to put ourselves out and being even made uncomfortable with, in our flesh in obedience to, to, with, for the Lord to speaking to people about Jesus. And the second, and I believe equally important truth, Matt brought to us last week, and that is to sow the gospel indiscriminately, that we sow indiscriminately. And Tuesday night at prayer, we had a really excellent prayer meeting, and, and Dean sh- shared something that uh, there were two things that were spoken toward the end of the meeting that were really, for me, very significant and kind of changed even the tenor of what I was going to teach because I'd already been planning on something else. But Dean reminded us on Tuesday night of the parable of the sower, that Jesus was teaching us in this parable that we are to sow and he even he made a picture of him. He uh, kind of perf- out, you know, lived it out a little bit in front of us, acted it out in front of us with so a bag over, just sowing seed, just sowing it indiscriminately. And the point that Dean made, and I believe that is important in, in this parable, is that we are to sow regardless of the soil. We just sow. And there's four soils. We always focus on the soil in that parable because that's what Jesus was teaching was about the different heart responses to the gospel, to the kingdom of God. But Dean said, and and this is what Matt was saying on Sunday, is that it doesn't really matter the soil. We just sow. And we sow indiscriminately. And God is the one who causes the growth, right? It's not up to us. Our responsibility is to sow. It's God's to cause the growth, to bring the growth. The soil is irrelevant to us. That's a pretty amazing statement. It's irrelevant. 
what we perceive the condition of the heart to be. Our responsibility is to sow seed everywhere we go as often and as much as we can. We are seed scatterers. And we should be scattering everywhere with whomever we have opportunity with. And we know from that parable that not all will hear. We're not foolish. Jesus teaches that. Not all will hear. Some will hear, but they'll never bear fruit for all sorts of reasons because of this condition of their heart. But some... In fact, many will. Turn with me to Acts 28, if you would. I want to read two texts as we begin this morning. Acts 28. I've put a lot of prayer into this, and I'm praying that what I have in my heart will be communicated, because I want to add a third eye, if I can. Not only being interruptible, living interruptible lives and sowing indiscriminately, but I want to teach and preach this morning about being inspired inspired to proclaim boldly, to have risky faith. Risky faith when it comes to our sharing and our speaking of the gospel. And I want to look at Acts 28, and I want to zero in especially on just three words. And I'm going to have them back and forth, coming to you again and again through this teaching. Acts 28, verse, beginning in verse 17. I'll just read toward, from 17 on to the end of, of 28. Acts 28. After three days, Paul was in Rome. He called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people, now we we know he's in house arrest here, or the customs of our fathers, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Matt made an important point. Uh, I don't remember where we were. We were all talking together as elders. And, and he said, you know, he goes, uh, he said, really what it was was that Paul wanted to get in front of Caesar. He, he, wanted, he wanted to be in front of Caesar. Why? Because he wanted to preach the gospel to Caesar. And, and so, you know, it sounds like a good excuse, you know, blaming someone else. But the reality is, is that he purposed to get there no matter what. And he says in verse 20, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you. They didn't really know much about him in Rome. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they appointed a day for him, they came to him and his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. There's the parable of the sower. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed. Now listen, after Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, this is what he said, 
Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Now, he's quoting Isaiah to them, and they knew this text well. For this people's heart has grown dull. They didn't think it applied to them. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their, eye with, and their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And let it, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent. Now, here it is to the Gentiles. And then three words, and these are the three words. They will listen. Say that with me. They will listen. And I want you to hear today, this is the message that I believe God is saying to us to inspire us. And I'm going to tell you why we can know this and believe this. The three words are, they will listen. In this context, Paul was speaking to Jewish leaders in Rome regarding the Gentiles. And he says, they will listen. They will listen. I also want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and I'm getting out way ahead of where we're going to be going in the weeks to come in our class. And I want to say something today lovingly that I'm going to be teaching this morning out of a hermeneutic out of a system of understanding of Scripture that it might be different from yours. And I respect you if you differ with my perspective because godly, wise men will, do not agree on how this text is interpreted. Did you hear what I said? Godly, wise men disagree. And even godly, wise men in this church may disagree. But I don't want you to miss my point but I feel I need to develop this for you in order to have you understand the importance of what I'm teaching this morning. The certainty that we can go with boldness knowing, listen, that they will listen. It's Revelation 20. It's something Kevin brought at the end of the prayer meeting Tuesday that went into my heart and my spirit that night. And I began to, again, think about it. And I've known this. I've thought of this many times and studied it and taught it. But this is the text, Revelation 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Listen, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Very, very, very controversial text in terms of how it could be interpreted and understood. I'm going to teach it to you today from a perspective that we are going to be teaching Revelation. And I want to say to you that this is already done, that this is not future, that this is, fin- this is done. And I want to explain to you why it's done and how it's done. This is a remarkable, remarkable truth that is really only spoken of clearly in this one place in all of the New Testament, but it is alluded to in many places. And the Lord Jesus, I believe himself, speaks of it and emphasizes this truth repeatedly. And the truth is this. 
that this vision of Satan's binding in Revelation chapter 20 is a representation of the events coinciding with the coming of Christ in the fullness of time. Christ has come and won a decisive victory over the evil one. We all agree with that, don't we? And this victory is gloriously revealed to us in the Gospels in many different ways and throughout the New Testament. With his victory over with his victory over Satan's temptations, which one is up there? With his victory over Satan's temptations in the wilderness, his declaration and exhibition of the power of the kingdom in casting out demons, plundering the enemy's stronghold as he cast out demons, his vanquishing of sin upon the cross, his victory over death's power. Listen to the totality of this. His victory over death's power at the resurrection from the dead with his ascension to the Father's right hand and the outpouring of the Spirit of God at Pentecost in this entire complex of Christ's saving, saving's work, he has won a decisive victory over Satan. In one sense, it is finished. In the truest sense, in the most important sense. In another sense, it's ongoing. The struggle, the battle, as the Bible says, the wrestling. But the point of it in Revelation 20 is in verse 3, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And I believe this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, where the Lord has said, the Father promises to give his Son the nations, the nations as his rightful inheritance, Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. That it is promised that it will be the inheritance of the Son to receive the nations given to him by his Father. Are you with me? Now, the reason I'm saying this is because I, as I prayed and thought about this, I believe Paul was acutely aware of these truths as he left Antioch with Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 and he embarked on his journey to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to parts of the world that had never even heard the name of Jesus. And we don't really have any idea of how dark the regions that he was to go into were of their history. We could study it. You can learn of it. Full of pagan and even demonic idolatry and worship. Polytheism. Rampant. Intellectual wisdom that was man's wisdom. Rampant in Greece, as we know. And Paul embarks on this journey with Barnabas And I believe that he was absolutely confident as he went, knowing that by the power of the Spirit of God and it was within him because of what Jesus has done, that they will listen to my message. He remembered Jesus' words, I believe, in Luke 10 and 18 and 19 when the 70 disciples returned with great joy from their successful mission that he had sent them out on to preach the gospel. They healed the sick, it says in Luke 10. 
They cast out demons. And then Jesus tells them how they were to accomplish, how they were able to accomplish it. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Luke 10, 18. And then he explains to them why this is true. He said, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. And some people would interpret that and say, well, that was the apostolic time. That was that, was that time. It's different now. Nothing's changed. This is, this is the commission and the mission of God for those that follow Jesus Christ, is it not? I believe that Paul understood the significance of the fact that the very first beings, the very first beings to recognize who Jesus was were demons. To recognize the incarnate Christ, the very first beings were not men, were not the wise scribes and the wise learned lawyers and the Pharisees of the day, or even the simple-hearted one. It was a demon who cries out in Mark 1 and Luke 4 crying out in terror that the Holy One had come to torment them. They knew their time had come. Paul knew that Jesus had taught what Matthew records in chapter 12, 28 and 29, that when he cast out demons by the Spirit of God, it meant that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God had come, that the finger of God, the power of God through a man was present in their midst. In his work, and he says this in Matthew chapter 12, he was binding the strong man. And the word binding in Matthew 12 is the same as the word bound in Revelation 20. And you know what it means? It means to wrap with chains, which is what chapter 20 says. That Jesus was binding through his presence, through his ministry, the power of of Satan, the one who had tormented, the one who had held captive, enslaved through sin and its consequence and blinded the men, the people of the earth, the nations of the earth to God's love since that terrible day that Adam gave up his birthright in the garden. Paul understood, I believe in that Acts 13 as he embarked with Barnabas, he understood and he remembered the words of the Lord Jesus after his resurrection when he says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And why can we do this? Because all authority, he says, has been given to me. Authority in heaven and on earth. And now I give to you that authority to go. Are you hearing this? And because of this authority, when you preach the gospel, listen, they will listen. Say that. They will listen. Satan's illegitimate power over the nations had been wrested from him and placed in the hands of the legitimate Lord and Savior of the world. And Paul knew now that the church must do its work, bring the good news of freedom from captivity to those who had been enslaved by sin and unbelief. And so it was Paul who would teach. It was Paul who would teach in Colossians 2, 14 and 15 what happened to the satanic power 
through the Lord's ministry. And this is what he is explaining in Colossians 2. What has happened to satanic authority and power? He says it is because of this. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The word disarmed, I looked it up. It's an interesting word. It means to like cast off. It's like to take something off that has no right to be on you. It's, to, it's almost like to slough it off. I found this translation. It's, it's the Phillips translation of the same text in Colossians. I love it. Listen to it. Read it. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments, which always hung over our heads, and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. That's beautiful. And then having drawn the sting of all the powers raging against us, that should be raging, he exposed them, shattered, empty, and defeated in his final glorious triumphant act. How beautiful is that? Paul wrote those words because he knew. He knew that when he went out in the name of Jesus Christ to bring the gospel to these pagan nations, that the Gentiles will listen. They will listen. How would he know that for certain? How could he be so inspired to have that kind of faith? Because he understood that something had happened in the heavenlies through the ministry, through the incarnation, through the work of Jesus Christ, through the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to earth and lived and walked among us, he threw down the gauntlet to Satan. You know what that means? It's a term, it's a glove that they used to wear the, the warriors, and they would take it and they would usher a challenge to a duel and they would throw it at the feet of the one whom they were challenging. And if the other man would pick it up and accept it, then they would duel. That's what Jesus did when he came in the incarnation. That's why the demons cried out because they knew why he had come. It was time. When he healed, when he set men free, when he raised the dead, the young boy in Luke 7 who had died and his mother was grieving, when he raised him, when he raised his friend in John, the enemy understood its significance. When he died on the cross and then rose, something happened to Satan. He had lost his authority. He had lost his ability to keep men from being reconciled to God. Listen, he was bound by what Jesus did. Now listen, of course, Satan is not powerless. We know. Peter reminds us of this in his writings, that he prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking those he may devour. He, he can still wreak great havoc. 
We are to be alert to his ploys. We are admonished in throughout New Testament scripture. We're not to be foolish regarding his ways. He can thwart us. Paul was thwarted in the book of Acts. He can attack with discouragement, persecution. Our bodies are still vulnerable because we are still yet not fully redeemed in our bodies. It's not finished with our human bodies. We're vulnerable in this life. But his power to deceive the nations and to blind is now limited. And the authority we have been given now is to preach this gospel to hearts, listen, that will respond. I was trying to think of a good example of it, and it was hard for me to think of one. And then a couple of things came to mind, and then this morning in prayer, a text was was shared that was really important. One example I thought of it would be like some of the young guys in our church that wrestle. And imagine wrestling from the time you're a freshman till the time you're a senior in high school. And there's one guy that just every time you wrestle him, he destroys you. And not only you, he destroys everybody else. He appears to be unbeatable. And before the greatest and most important match of your life as a senior, and, and you're going to wrestle this dude, someone comes up to you and says, listen, I want you to know that somebody else already wrestled him and defeated him for you. you got to wrestle him. You're going to have to wrestle him today, but I want you to know that he's already been defeated for you. It's, it's done. Well, you've heard the metaphor of an army who has to take a city. What if someone said to that army, listen, the city's been taken. Now you've got to go in and just secure it. The text that was shared in prayer was from Judges. If you turn to Judges 7, it's the story of Gideon. Gideon starts off with thousands and thousands of men that are going to go to battle. And through a series of things the Lord does with them, he ends up with 300. And the reason is because God said, I don't want you to think that it was your hand that did this. I want you to know it was me. And in verse 15, Judges 7, 15, it says, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and he said, and these are the words that I speak to you today from my heart. Arise, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Arise. There are three examples in the book of Acts, and I don't have time to get into them in depth, but I want to just have you look at them quickly with me of now what Paul will do. The first is Acts 14, if you would turn there. Arise, brothers and sisters, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. The Gentiles will listen. The unbelieving will listen. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas preach in Lyconia. I didn't look on Wikipedia. I looked in a Britannica encyclopedia to find a little bit of truth about Lyconia. 
There really is such a thing as an encyclopedia, in case you guys didn't know that. This is what it says in there about Lyconia. It was an ancient region inhabited by a wild and warlike aboriginal people who pastured sheep and wild asses on the bleak central highlands. It's kind of a primitive people. This is where Paul and Barnabas were in Acts 14. And they heal a man, and then they are mistaken by this primitive people to be gods, to be Zeus and Hermes. And the people begin worshiping them. And Paul's message to them was, was interesting. He says, listen, we are men of like nature as you, but we bring you good news that, and here's the point, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, Paul said he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying you with food and gladness. In other words, Paul says the past witness God has given you is what we call common grace. It's simply the goodness of God living in a beautiful world. But he says now there is a clear revelation, though, of this true and living God in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul was stoned in that city, not by the Lyconians, but by the Jews that came from the other cities around. And he's drug out of, out of the city dead, as though dead out of Lystra. And what happens to him? He's raised. And what does he do? He goes back into the city to preach the gospel to them. Why? Because he knew that they would listen. He was confident. Because in writing the Colossians, he explained that the satanic power has been broken. Not completely. We're not foolish. In Acts 17, he preaches to a completely different people. He preaches in the, in the Areopagus of Athens to Greek intellectuals and philosophers. So you're going from, I don't know, I don't want to badmouth a part of our city. You're going from a place that might be a little downtrodden to, Cal, to, to UC Davis to preach to the brilliant intellectuals in UC Davis. <laughs> Janet knows a little bit about this. These were very religious people as well, but a different kind of religiousness. They worshipped many gods. They even had a shrine to an unknown god. It was the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They just didn't know who this god was. Paul knew who this was, shrine was referring to. And he says this to them in Acts 17. What, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then he says this, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He preaches a different message to the Athenians than he did to the Iconians. But he preached it with the same boldness and the same confidence because he knew what? They will listen. They will listen. And in his wisdom, Paul moved from a critique of their popular cultural idolatries, which the philosophers, which they were, Stoics and Epicureans, would agree with. And he went into an area that they would not agree with, that there was a sovereign God over all who was transcendent and imminent, which they would not believe. And in fact, that he would come and had already appointed a man to judge all of them one day. And he preached this with boldness and confidence because he knew they would listen. And then finally, very quickly in Acts 19, there is a power encounter with the ruling spiritual authorities over the city of Ephesus. We've gone from preaching to simple sheep herders to aboriginal type of people who live in a mountain region somewhere, or a plain somewhere, to preaching to, in the Areopagus to the Athenian scholars and intellectuals. And now in Ephesus, he encounters head on the, the dynamic of the spiritual principality and authority over a region that was going to become a very key region in the ministry of Paul over the city of Ephesus. In this chapter, in, in Acts 19, in verse 9, the word of the Lord has been resisted and even slandered by the Jewish leaders. And then because God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul, Jewish exorcists in this chapter try to duplicate it. And they are beaten up and stripped of their clothing and thrown out of the house by the demons in a man that they were trying to cast out. And when this happened, fear came on the city. And then finally, because of the power of God through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, those who had been in the occult turned, many turned and believed. Is this awesome? And they renounced their practices and they burned their books. It said they burned 50,000 silver pieces worth of material. I tried to find out how much that was worth. And, one, and they actually don't, don't know for sure because they don't know how much silver was in them. But there's a possibility it was worth a million dollars. And as a result of this, one of the silversmiths named Demetrius realizes, hey, these dudes are touching the economy. Listen to this. They're affecting the economy. Can I say that again? They're affecting the economy of this city. And in their mind, it was negative because it was, it was their pocketbook that was being affected. They didn't know what would happen when redemption would come to a city how it would change the hearts of men and how they would end up probably prospering ultimately. And so a riot takes place. And Paul and Barnabas leave, but not before they've preached the gospel in this demonic stronghold of Ephesus. And Paul was unafraid. Paul was unafraid. 
Paul was unafraid to go into the very seat of power, satanic seat of power over a region and preach the gospel. Why? Say it with me. Because he knew they will listen. I know Doug and Sita have done this. I've done this. We're maybe going to San Francisco into Castro and preach. Go to the Castro district of San Francisco and preach and find out what happens. You're encountering, you're, you're encountering the satanic powers that hold the hearts of men and women. And they hate it. And it is not a pretty sight how they respond. I've been there. I've, I've been there when we have done this. I've heard the stories of Doug and Sita, people literally physically being attacked. How do we know? Why should we do this? Why can we do this? Why should we? Why must, we? Why must we? Because we know they're going to listen. They're going to listen. Not all of them. Not all of them are going to respond but many will. Turn with me to Revelation 12, and I'm going to close. Revelation 12 gives us a panoramic view of history, of all of history. It's a panoramic view of all of history, human history. And it says in verse 7, there was a war. A war arose in heaven. A war is fought in heaven. And I believe that this text is referring to what takes place not when the angels are cast down from heaven with Satan, but I believe this is the war that took place at the cross. The battle was being waged in the heavens as Christ died that day on the cross. And the reason I believe that is because of verse 10. It says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, and that's interesting, this voice sounds like it's the voice of the saints who have already gone on. And I'll tell you why in a minute. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, that's why I think it's the saints, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Because we know that Satan used to come in front of God, before God in the book of Job, and bring accusation, and now he can no longer do that because of the cross and the work of Christ. And then verse 11, that very familiar passage. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows, listen, that his time is short. Strife will continue for a short time as the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth. This is us now. This is the day you're living in. You're living in verse 12. 
but we go inspired to be risky and bold in our faith because we know that Jesus has already won this battle. That the power of Satan has been broken. That Satan has been bound. Effectually, through the work of the cross and the resurrection. And his ascension now is the declaration that he is seated at the right hand of God is the declaration of his authority over heaven and earth. And I want to leave you with just these thoughts. Simple. The kingdom of God is here now. Live in it. Live in it. The time to reach the nations is now. The time to reach your neighbors is now. Because the deception of the nations is removed. Go to it. Go to them. And the Lord Jesus is worth dying for in this world. Therefore, live for him. We need to live our lives wholeheartedly and radically in this day with great boldness and great confidence because of what Jesus has done.